Hello, everybody. Today is Thursday, November 17th, 2022, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today's guest is Susan, Susan Sanga. Did I get that right that time? Yes. Good. <laughs> Who is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Indiana University School of Medicine, Start Neuroscience Research Institute. Susan's, Susan's work is on learned fear and safety and the neural circuits that continuously evaluate our threats and mediate our responses to them. Hi, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Also with me is Anthony Burgos Robles. He's a regular on the podcast, one of the UTSA faculty with very related expertise. And I'm sure that Tony will contribute a lot to this. I'm hoping for it. I hope so. Me too. Hi, <laughs> and me, I'm Charlie Wilson. So correct me about this if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that brain circuits responsible for learned fear are mostly subcortical. And the role of cortical structures like the prelimbic cortex, for example, or the hippocampus, is in um, somehow controlling and inhibiting fearful responses to stimuli the cortex somehow knows are not harmful, or maybe to make more nuanced evaluations at the level of threat. And um, is this correct? And is it, it is consistent with the kind of prejudgment that many people have about the role of subcortical and cortical structures and fear being a very primitive thing that could have been implemented in the oldest parts of the brain. And, uh, but it just sounds like almost uh, too trite to be true, is it? Yeah. I mean, certainly a lot of people treat it that way where amygdala is you know, all about fear and other salient events like reward. Um, and then controlling those um, reward and fear behaviors is a lot more cortical. Um, and a lot of the research has been directed in that way and does seem to support it more or less. Now, is it true? I don't know. Um, it may be a lot more nuanced than that, but um, I'm pretty convinced that amygdala is you know, the fastest response center to um, salient cues in the environment, especially for fear cue or threatening cues, I should say. Um, do you have any anything to add to that, Tony? I guess, I guess you know, similar to many fields in neuroscience, you know, with advances in technologies, you know, we have come uh, with clever ideas to examine distinct parts of the brain in different ways, and we have realized, you know, that those uh, prior conceptions about, you know, like these parts of the brain do this only thing mm -hmm. or primitive behavior versus this other brain region does this other thing that has been you know like a challenge of often um, during later years right because now things are not as black and white right there's a lot of gray in between and i think the contribution of these thin brain regions you know modulating different aspects of these behaviors i think that should be a little bit more consistent with what we know so far so one of the reasons that people have moderated their views about brain function localization is because things are so heavily interconnected that it's very hard experimentally to pin down what is the contribution of this part of the brain versus that one because they're interacting with each other so intensely. So is that a issue that comes up in, in the 
pain and fear and safety kind of work? Definitely. And even within the brain region, we have like these different sub-networks that may be doing opposing things. So it's not even just interconnected brain regions. There's interconnected mini-networks within a brain region that could be uh, doing opposing things and integrating in different ways under certain circumstances. Um, it's, I always think it's amazing that we saw anything with lesion data in the past because yes. there's so many sub-networks within a brain region. It's like, how did we see anything with a lesion before? Because um, we were eliminating all of these sub-networks, right? Yes, and yeah. not only you know, different networks, but the types of neurotransmitters that are used by these distinct networks, the kinds of neurotransmitters and inputs they are receiving from all over the, the brain uh, basically makes us wonder, you know, like why, what are we exactly studying, right? Because it seems to me, you know, that um, especially in the field of behavioral neuroscience that during recent years, you know, like people have come up with all sort of new behavioral tasks right? <laughs> There's always some kind of correlate uh, associated to those um, behavioral tasks, despite major differences, um, fundamental differences. But for example, uh, Susan and I were talking this morning about uh, her way of studying safety signals in the brain versus the way I do it in my lab, which is in a completely different manner. Um, can you try to give us or the audience a little bit of mm -hmm. the way you investigate safety signals? Yeah, so we do it very cued based. So there's these specific environmental cues that mean threat, that mean reward, or mean safety. And so you know, we, what we do is the classical rodent Pavlovian conditioning task where there's a tone that predicts sucrose and then a different tone that predicts a foot shock. Um, and then for, in this case, our safety cue would be a light cue um, to indicate there's gonna be no foot shock. And if we put that on top of the fear cue and don't present the foot shock, we're hoping to downregulate fear compared to the fear cue by itself when it is actually paired with foot shock. So in that case, it would be adaptive response to be afraid of that cue when it's presented alone because there actually will be a foot shock. Um, so ours is very cue-based, um, nothing about context um, or you know, s location and space, which is kind of what you're starting to do with your safety task. Um, that might be a good time to hand it to you to say how you do safety behaviorally. Yeah, so <clears throat> you're correct. So the way I'm doing it in my lab is to basically introduce uh, different, different areas of uh, apparatus with distinct temperatures. So we know that many animals, including us humans, we cannot tolerate uh, drastic changes in temperatures, including, you know, like, or if it is way too hot or way too cold, you know, that is threatening for our health. And um, especially, you know, we can risk hypothermia, for example, if we are exposed for too long for an environment that is too cold. So in my lab, you know, we just take square-shaped apparatus and we introduce either warming mats or ice underneath the floor and just let the animal explore the apparatus on, on the top and you know we realize that animals prefer to stir to stay in warm cozy temperature areas versus the colder areas so in that case you know like we can mimic uh you know a more naturalistic innate behavior that the animal will always seek, you know, like the warm, cozy uh, zones in the environment as opposed to stay or remain exposed mm -hmm. to the 
threatening and very cold temperatures. So in that case, you know, like I'm wondering, you know, like what are the differences and what are the similarities in between the ways you and I investigate safety learning? Mm -hmm. So can I ask you, I mean, yes. do you interpret your experiment in a Pavlovian way? Like there's a cue? Not, not at all. Because there are no, there are no actual. There are no cues. There's like a place. Cues. There are no discrete cues. Yeah. We provide visual cues on the walls of the apparatus just to help animals to orient themselves in space, right? You know, similar to what the Pernuncio uh, research used to do here. You know, like just provide some plus signs versus some circles or triangle, large shapes in the walls, so animals can learn at least, you know, like which corner of the apparatus is you know like the safe uh, area of the apparatus as opposed to use a discrete mm -hmm. cue and animals need to learn this new novel cue you know a specific frequency and learn that there's no danger happening during that situation. But it is a cue in a way because they have the little plus signs. Have you tried moving it? Uh, so and, and do they like you know with the classic Morse water maze move yeah. the move the platform? That's a good question. <laughs> and um, actually, I ask uh, my students to do this very simple mm -hmm. uh, treatment or experiment, and they haven't done it yet, so <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, we, we did it in a kind of messy manner at the beginning, and it seems that animals cannot tell that well anymore where the okay. uh, safety area is in the, in the apparatus. But, you know, what is different is that in your task, you control the onsets and offsets mm -hmm. and the whole presentation of the safety signal, right, of the safety view. In my case, they're always present in the environment, right? Yeah, and it's, it's up like, to the animal where yeah, they go there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I related to, you know, like when I spent my years up north in <laughs> MIT and Boston, you know, uh, that just, you know, even before stepping out of the door <laughs> when it was, you know, like, the crude winter, like my brain will tell me, you know, like hold off, you know, like don't don't go outside yet, right? So I have to battle with these, you know, uh, in a daily basis, basically, right? So just to get exposed out there to to cold temperatures. So I think um, in that way, uh, I think we are exploring similar things, similar neural processes in similar brain regions that seem to do or play very important roles, but still, you know, like in very distinct manners. Yeah. So I'm wondering uh, exactly, do we understand, you know, like how the brain works? You know, <laughs> right? Or, you know, like as our conversation was going this morning, um, we have very strong hypotheses about current and traditional models of how distinct parts of the brain work, right? But it just takes, you know, throwing a whole new thing mm -hmm. into the mix, and we see that, you know, like those brain regions still play major roles. So yeah. the question is, you know, like, where can we go from here? Um, yeah. The distinction that you raise, though, is not so much about how the brain works, it's about how behavior works. I was about and to so, follow up on uh, that, too. <laughs> so I just noticed that, I was just thinking about the fact that you are the president-elect, maybe currently president yeah. of the Pavlovian well, Society. Newly president-elect. Newly yeah. president-elect mm -hmm. of the Pavlovian Society, winner of the Pavlovian Research Award. Mm -hmm. So there's a Pavlovian Society. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, there is. That was an easy question. <laughs> so is there a, a Sharon Toning Society? Is there Edgar Adrian Society? No, Pavlov <laughs> has some kind of staying power yeah. that no, nobody else has. Since the 1920s. And uh, after, for, after 100 years, his ideas are still governing a big piece of research. Mm -hmm. Not everything, obviously, because Tony is not interpreting his animal's behavior in a Pavlovian Yeah, yours is more way. of an off-print way. But um, <laughs> what is it about the, this Pavlovian framework that makes it so useful and powerful, and not just to you, but uh, mm -hmm. it seems like to the whole world? Yeah, well, in a real-life scenario, we are there's always cues in our environment that are turning on or off, or even staying constant. You can still consider those Pavlovian cues, perhaps. Um, and if they are associated with something significant, like this is a very fundamental learning principle that all organisms need to learn. Um, and I think um, experimentally, um, let's go into more a practical thing, it's really practical to turn on a cue and turn off a cue and keep it simple, especially when we're doing things like neural recordings, it makes it definitely a lot easier to analyze the data and we're, I guess, lucky that it gives us really rich behaviors that are meaningful to real life. Um, yeah, you have anything to There's add on that? Language. There's a language that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So you can say extinction. Yeah. Extinction means something in a Pavlovian mm -hmm. environment. I don't know, is there an equivalent of extinction in your experiment if you quit making a nice warm cozy place over there oh we the talked corner. about this yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good question we were talking about this uh, about this uh, this morning because you know like the beauty about all classical pavlovian conditioning past is that we the experimenters control the delivery of the distinct stimuli right so and we measure uh, the behavior of the animal during those discrete times right in the way I'm doing, you know, like in one of the projects, uh, safety learning, the animal has the control, right? Mm -hmm. The animal decides whether keep avoiding that cold corner or go and explore it one more time, right? Mm -hmm. So we cannot tell the animal, just go, move, right? Mm -hmm. So in my case, you know, like one of the issues I may encounter is, you know, like, would there be extinction, you know, even if I keep the animal Ex, uh, exposed to this apparatus for an entire day, maybe there's no extinction, right? Because yeah. the animal is not willing to explore that environment anymore. The animal already learned and have been that specific corner of the apparatus as dangerous, right? So mm -hmm. why to get exposed to it? Yeah, and that's really relevant for something like PTSD where they may have developed avoidant behaviors that they're just not gonna be willing to try to even extinguish. Exactly. So from the point of view of probing the brain, the Pavlovian task has certain advantages in that the timing of things is mm -hmm. well known. So, for example, if you wanted to turn on a laser to, uh, <coughs> to cause some excitation or inhibition in some part of the brain, you'd need to know when. Um, in your situation, you'd have to kind of give the animal the opportunity to make that decision, I guess. Exactly, yeah. And to do like a closed loop system. Who am I to tell the animal, move now? <laughs> so anyways, I think um, the advantages are many using Pavlovian tasks. Um, I think, you know, even these major differences, again, you know, like I'm always fascinated by 
you know, how the brain can, you know, take distinct pieces of information. And I, I'm guessing, you know, regardless of whether through Pavlovian or spatial navigational learning processes, it's up to the animal in this, you know, in all these laboratory settings to utilize the distinct pieces of sensory information provided in the environment to determine, you know, like what is it presented and what can I do and what's best always, for me? Yeah, <laughs> to always obtain yeah, yeah. the best benefit ever, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what drives most of the behavior, right? You know, like what is more beneficial for the animal? You know, staying in a dangerous situation or you know, uh, avoid it somehow. So um, I'm guessing, you know, like I can ask a little bit about the data you presented today. Mm -hmm. And I found quite fascinating uh, the major differences that you have seen in many, many studies across uh, sexes or genders in, in mm -hmm. rats. And this is using rats, right? And one of those was that uh, completely got uh, my attention was that females are unable to use those safety cues to integrate them uh, into the uh, memory to control the behavior, right? So yep. why, is that? why is that? Yeah, so I didn't go into all the details of it. So when you do group averages, you know, the females are not down-regulating fear in the presence of the safety cue to the same extent that our males are. But if you look at individual differences, it turns out about 25% of the females show kind of decent downregulation of fear. And then if you look at the males, it turns out like about 30% of them don't. So bulk averages, group averages, most males will learn it. The most females in our hands will not learn it. Now why? Um, we, let's see, so one thing we talked about in our lab is the intensity of the shock. We use the same intensity of the shock for both the males and females, but the females are much smaller. Um, and to get around to why, you know, is it possible that they're perceiving the shock as maybe more painful and more aversive, and then that would make sense that there would be more fear and would be failing to downregulate. Um, so far, when we look at you know, shock reactivity, you can look at freezing levels, you can look at jumping levels, you can look at darting levels to different intensities of shock. And so far we have not seen differences in our males and females, even though the females are so much smaller. Uh, we're still gonna look at that because, you know, maybe we got lucky with those animals, I don't know, but it seems like it would make sense that it would be more painful for the females. But even, uh, maybe we're just not measuring it right. Maybe we don't have the right behavioral metrics to capture that quality. Because uh, I know some people are looking at pain pathways in males versus females, and it looks like there are differences. I don't know the precise ones, but I know um, it's probably not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be explaining why. So maybe it is still overall more aversive for them. Um, and I should also say that is based on freezing behavior. Um, which is the dominant behavior for our animals. Uh, but we also have looked at some, you know, this newer type of behavior that people are starting to talk about in defensive fear behavior is darting, these little quick little sort of escape-like responses um, that people are reporting females do more of. And we did look at that and we, we didn't see too much of it, but when we did see it, it was the females who were darting during the fear cue and so. Yeah. 
And then if you put the safety cue on top of that, it did downregulate it. So there is some level that they are able to downregulate a defensive response. It's just not capturing it at the freezing level. Um, it was working on the darting level. So that tells me that they understand what the safety cue is. They understand the meaning of it. It's just they're not behaviorally showing that downregulation of that's, fear. That's a very intriguing point because if you look deep, deeper into the literature, there seems to be sex differences across many behavioral tasks, including reward-seeking mm -hmm. tasks, um, um, anxiety, uh, measuring tasks, and just you know comes back to the question, are the male and female brains wired this in this in different manners or you know like I cannot recall like anatomical neuroanatomical studies saying you know what you know like females are showing more of this type of connectivity versus you know mm -hmm. males or the other way around so yeah people need to do more of those studies yes. <laughs> all these yes. tracing studies yes. I think most of it was probably done in males or they're just not even reported in the paper which sex they use for the tracing stuff yeah. um, but I think also that for some reason, they use different strategies um, to maybe accomplish the same endpoint as what's best for them. Yeah. And then for us, it seems like neither one of them is following the strategy I'd follow in that experiment. What would you do? So in the experiment, when you you already know that this tone means shock, mm -hmm. and this light means you're not going to get shocked even if the tone is on, mm -hmm. I wouldn't freeze ever if that light was on. You'd be one of our great learners, the superb learners. Because <laughs> Because it makes no sense to yes. ever freeze when that thing yes. is on. It's not a probabilistic task. It's not yeah. like the, you get shocked half the time when the light is on. But you never get shocked when the light is on. It's true. You may understand that you won't get shocked, but you still may not like it. You're like, oh, that fear cue's on again. I'm like, I don't like it. And there's nothing else to do. There's a reward's not available. So I'm going to freeze a little bit. Um, uh -huh. So some rats have that strategy. <laughs> You're going to be Mr. Cool. I don't really expect to have the same strategy as a rat. I'm not, I'm not thinking I would. Yeah. But I think I think you you know you mentioned something that perhaps is you know adding some salt to the wound in the film, which is for way too long we were stuck <clears throat> with only one measurement, behavioral measurement, mm -hmm. which was freezing behavior, right? Wow. So, you know, like many, many of us in the field have come up with clever ideas, you know, like to just examine a whole lot of mm -hmm. other behaviors that may have been perhaps, you know, like overseen or, you know, like um, people completely ignore them, but like the darting behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, in some of my experiments, I see like stretch mm -hmm. uh, body behavior. Yeah, we get that too. Yeah, <laughs> so in which animals, you know, they, they, they feel there's some kind of motivational conflict. Like I was showing her, uh, we began this, um, you know, a few months ago, a new project on social phobia basically based on exposing animals to electric shocks uh, in the presence of a social stimulus. It's basically another animal, right, that predicts the, the shock. But then, you know, like when animals get shocked, then, you know, there is this conflict of, you know, socializing versus avoiding that potential uh, social danger. And animals start doing like this, you know, stretchy behavior, or they start walking backwards, you know, like we got, <laughs> you know, stop stopping, you know, like uh, visualizing where the social danger is located, right? So, and I guess, you know, like 
the future of neuroscience or behavioral neuroscience uh, should take into account a lot more of this and you know even develop better uh, computational uh, algorithms that can capture all this gamma of behaviors that we yeah. may have been missing for many years. What's really uh, kind of reassuring in recent years and it's going to happen in future years is people are paying more attention to behavior now. Before it was kind of I don't know, people were annoyed with behavior, I think, um, especially if you're not a behavioral neuroscientist. But now people are, I think, appreciating all the nuances of the behavior and how that correlates with recordings, for example, or whatever, whatever you're inhibiting. Um, so I think that's going to continue and we're just going to have yeah. yeah, more rich behavior. I've always feel, uh, felt um, completely intrigued by the 1980s which there were many behavioral neuroscientists out there, you know, like looking at many of these um, questions, um, you know, using animal models, right? And um, I think, you know, like going back and integrating all the new technologies, like of the genetics, calcium imaging, which your lab also has begun to, to implement, um, are very key to going back to the basics of learning a memory and how those memory representations affect uh, mm -hmm. behavior, which I'm you know, looking forward you know, to the future to see you know, what else you know, can people uh, show uh, out there. And so maybe because we have been limited in what we could measure, we have made some mistakes. We have some misconceptions. So one of the, I, one of the ideas that seems pervasive is the idea that fear is a unitary thing. Fear is fear regardless of what you're afraid of. And is that just because we measured freezing and that's all? Or is it really that fear is a unitary thing and that all the different things that make us fearful somehow funnel into one system in the brain? And well, so, it can't be fully unitary because we talked about this morning, the innate fear versus learned fear. They seem to have slightly different neural systems to encode them. So that there's at least two, yeah. right? Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's not a unitary thing and not like black and white or even what we, we may think, <laughs> what we may think, you know, is a fear reaction, perhaps it's not, right? And I guess, you know, like I, I mentioned it to her this morning that we have another behavioral task in the lab to mainly focus on uh, animals developing strategies to avoid the danger, right? To avoid an electric shock and animals climb on a platform and they avoid it, right? But we measure the time that animals spend on the platform versus off the platform, and also with freezing, right? After several days of training, animals completely stop freezing. They don't show any freezing anymore, even though there is an imminent danger coming, right? So animals completely switch their strategy. So. Uh, for avoidance and climbing on the platform. And the question is, you know, is that, okay, a, not for is that a fear, yeah, yeah, is that a fear response? So mm -hmm. in that case, it's not a fear response anymore, right? The animal already learned how to cope with the danger in the environment, right? It's a fear situation, right? But it's not a fear behavior. Yeah. Right? Because so, they can control the outcome this time. Yeah, they can control the mm -hmm. outcome, right? Yeah, mine they can't. Yeah, <laughs> it's Pavlovian, they can't control anything. Steve Mayer's uh, work, you mm -hmm. know, since uh, uh, many years ago, uh, you know, showing that media performed the cortical regions are very important for uh, when the animal learns to cope with the danger in the mm -hmm. environment, right? Like controllability of a stressor versus 
uncontrollability of a stressor, mm -hmm. right? So when animals learn to control the stressor, then, you know, like it seems maybe the prefrontal cortical mm -hmm. regions uh, light up, but when the animal cannot control the outcome, then the PFC fails to show, you know, like strong correlates. Yeah, and then when I put the safety cue on, then the right. PFC is engaged. Your safety task, infolimbic, is also involved. So it's converging on the same area of PFC, all these yeah. behavioral so, flexibility regulation tasks. Could that be mm -hmm. a reason why you see in your electrophysiology data uh, the strongest signal when there is that safety signal yeah. diminishing the fear? Yeah, so when you have the fear cue alone and the safety cue alone, you know, I mean, there's some neurons that respond to that, but then we have all these neurons that really respond, respond strongly when you put those two together. It's like a conflict cue. It's almost like, okay, maybe the situation's ambiguous to me, even though for you, you said it would not be ambiguous when the safety cue is on. <laughs> but if it's, okay, maybe it's ambiguous. I need to figure out what do I need to do? And that's when the IL is like, mm -hmm. infralimbic is online and trying to guide the animal's behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very strong, usually excitation, very little inhibitions in that study. So it would make sense with that framework. Mm -hmm. That's what the infralimbic is well, doing. I can see that, I mean, uh, if, if we were thinking that there is like some primitive subcortical system <clears throat> that responds to the fear cue, and that it's always going to respond to the fear cue, and it doesn't, it is too primitive to change, and then there's some other part of the brain that can override that, mm -hmm. then you could say, well, how much did it override it? Did it override it 50%? Did it override it 100%? Mm -hmm. And the animals would have to decide, you know, the brains, their brains would have to decide, this is totally safe. Mm -hmm. Shut down that primitive. Mm -hmm. But that is that the way? Is it could it actually be like that because the because these brain regions are all in circuits that feed back on each other and know mm -hmm. what each other's thinking. There's mm -hmm. some truth behind that argument. Um, I remember um, back in 2012, uh, Cyril Harry and Andreas Luthi in Switzerland published a very intriguing paper using electrophysiological recordings in the amygdala and they actually found uh, three classes of neurons uh, that would do some signaling for fear and that brings you know like uh, some uh, perhaps explanation for something you were mentioning earlier which is that they saw that there are populations of neurons in the amygdala that do the signaling of the cues that predict the danger, right? And some neurons don't show any response to that cue until the animals learn to extinguish those fear responses, right? So it's like an inverted X behavior mm -hmm. of these um, neurons that fear neurons then lower their responsiveness while extinction neurons, quote unquote, they mm -hmm. augment the responses when the animal is extinguishing the fear. However, there was a third class of neuron that they deemed as sustained or permanent uh, fear neuron population, which once they develop a response to the fear cue, mm -hmm. even with extinction training, those animals kept signaling uh, the uh, fearful cue over and over and over, so meaning the neural circuits may be way more complex than you know what we may imagine, and 
obviously, you know, like those signals need to go somewhere, you know, for further processing. And we believe, you know, one of those brain regions is the medial prefrontal cortex, you know, mm -hmm. to, so that that information can be integrated with other pieces of sensory information, like contextual information, you know, what is happening in the environment? What are the uh, features of the environment that could also be, you know, uh, used as predictors of danger versus safety. Yeah, how probable is yeah. it going to be? Mm -hmm. And perhaps to integrate Charlie here, which, you know, he's uh, an expert in basal ganglia processing, right? All we've been talking about is behavior, right? You may imagine that some kind of interactions, you know, with these fear and safety brain circuits, you know, some kind of interaction may be occurring with striatal and basal ganglia regions to actually do the control of motion and you know, like mm -hmm. moving or freezing or not freezing and so on. I'm fascinated by the idea of fear neurons that yeah. you just brought up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, And I just was wondering, I couldn't help thinking to myself, maybe I didn't hear everything you said because I was thinking too loud about it. <laughs> about that. Um, but I was thinking if I could record those neurons and mm -hmm. I and in one context where the animal was fearful of one thing, and then I put the animal in a context where it was fearful of something completely different, would I see the same neurons that were activated or would there be two different groups of neurons? I mean normally we think I think it'd be both. <laughs> yeah. I think you'll have some neurons that will, you know, generalize across so the two, but then you'll have some new pop overlap. Yeah. Overlap between. Be a long, yeah. So we always expect overlap when, when we say there's a, a unique set of neurons that represents mm -hmm. each thing. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, fear is no different from um, visual sensation, right? There's some group of neurons that respond to anything that you Mm. give and then some of those neurons will respond to some other thing. That could be based in specific connectivity of the network, <clears throat> but also I would imagine, and I bet, you know, perhaps a hundred dollars that you will see the other finding, which is distinct populations of neurons also do encoding for one type of fear versus another population doing the encoding for another Mm -hmm. so that's an optimistic thought because it means if you would if you'd like to get rid of the fear mm -hmm. of one thing so let's say I have some phobia of heights mm -hmm. I would like to get rid of that but I don't necessarily want to get rid of my phobia of rattlesnakes when I do that mm -hmm. and so if fear is one thing mm -hmm. and knocking it down is going to knock it down to everything then that's um, it's a dangerous thing to start messing around mm -hmm. with fear circuits. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It'd be like messing around with pain circuits. So can we do that? Can we mess around with fear circuits and see what it does? Can you can you turn off fear in a rat somehow? I mean, this gets to like Steve Ramirez's work where he can label neurons that were active during, let's say, a fear test and then later manipulate those exact neurons that happen to be active. So those would be the fear neurons in your case. Um, and yeah, he can, um, you know, up and down with the optogenetics, it'll go up and down the fear. Um, I forget if there's been, uh, it's always been one fear cue, right? And he hasn't done like multiple ones. And, uh, like, yeah, but <clears throat> if you go back to studies by, I forgot exactly. Um, I know, you know, like the crowd that investigates um, 
memory engrams mm-hmm. are based on fear models. Right? Yeah, like most of them are doing a real world. And Chena uh, Jocelyn, basically, you know, like Chena Jocelyn's work says something about, well, you know, like there may be many neurons in the amygdala able to support do the encoding fear. for fear, mm-hmm. but the memory engram doesn't require all of them to actually uh, develop a permanent representation of the mm-hmm. fear signals in the world, right? However, those that do the long-term memory representation, if you do some kind of manipulation to ablate them, then the fear memory gets uh, erased, right? So that goes to Charlie's question about, you know, can we get rid of fear by doing some kind of manipulation? Yeah, these are sort of conditioned fears. Like um, if I develop a fear of a particular kind of spider, then someplace in my brain there's a place where I recognize that spider. And that's now become part of the fear response. But I can imagine that part of the brain just goes to the fear neurons and turns them on. And now I could do a bunch of experiments on these spider-recognizing neurons and think that I'm somehow interfering with the fear mechanism, which I'm kind of interfering with the learning of fear mechanism Mm -hmm. and remembering of a learned fear. But fear could still be a central unitary thing, kind of like when I learn to move, I still have to make the same motor Mm -hmm. neurons fire as no matter what the movement is. So I was just sort of wondering about that, a final common pathway of fear that would be a very primitive thing. It probably is like that because it would be the fastest response, which is pretty essential when it comes to trying to avoid a threat. Uh, I would not be surprised if there was just this funneling of a single very fast pathway because it would be the most efficient um, for anyone who has a limbic circuit. So not snails. Well, I used to work with snails. <laughs> so not snails. <laughs> so how about that? In a snail, is there just like a it's mostly It's mostly, I think, pain-based. Like you'll get avoidant responses, but it's all about avoiding this painful stimulus that it can learn predictors of uh-huh. when it's going to happen. It can make a response in anticipation, kind of like an eye blink response in a way where mm-hmm. you know it's coming and so you do something uh-huh. to avoid um, or brace yourself for the for the um, stimulus coming in, but you know there's no cortex there and there's no <laughs> limbic circuit. It's all just very no amygdala. yeah. I mean they probably have there's probably like little tiny networks that may serve the same function, but you know obviously it's nothing like a rodent or a vertebrate brain, I should say. Yeah. Well, the vertebrate brain, I guess, is way too complex, and I think you know like you would imagine, yeah, let's just you know like find the fear neurons get rid of them and get rid of all fears, right? But it's way more complex than that, and that's why... New neurons will just so, come in. <laughs> so many macro networks, right, including mm-hmm. multiple regions of the yeah. brain, more than cortical, including hippocampal processing, right? And all these ideas about indexing neurons, right, so that once activated, you know, those can reactivate the entire memory mm-hmm. engram coming to play, right? So you don't and then engrams to... can be linked together it's based on reactivations in the past, and you get a ripple effect if you yeah. knock out one. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for coming and talking yeah. to us about fear yeah. and uh, safety. <laughs> and safety, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks, Tony. Yeah, mm-hmm. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.